0: Well, hopefully you're still awake. It's been a great, uh, great day, great program. Um, when John uh, sent me a note, asked me, uh, he knew I was coming to Lattice Work and asked if I would end the day uh, having a chat with uh, Tom, I immediately said yes and I told him, I'm sorry, that's better, um, I immediately told him yes and I said, you know, it would be an honor and he said, course it would be an honor to talk to Tom and it is because Tom is one of the exceptional great money managers in the country and even though we're the same age he looks distinguishedly younger <laughs> than I am uh, to give you an idea when I wrote the Warren Buffett Way in 1994 we published it Tom was already in his second decade of managing money at Semper Vic um, and that was quite extraordinary so we're the same age but clearly Tom hit the ground running quicker than I did and covered many more miles than I did when we first met. To give you an idea, we tell the story about Sequoia Fund having the first five years of underperformance when Warren turned over money to them and how uh, Bill said that was just, you know, a tough time and things like that. Well, Tom started his Sempervic partners and decided he would outperform the market for seven consecutive years. And in the first 11 years when Warren Buffett came out, I looked at the track record and he had beaten the market 10 out of 11 years. So if you want to start a firm, get off the ground running, do what Tom did. And then lastly, I would tell you the reason why I think it, it is so impressive what Tom has done is that you've got to think about 1984 uh, when Tom started uh, Semper Vic. And he'll tell the story about meeting Warren. But he was the very first, uh, in my judgment. Maybe there was an ant or two uh, walking around, but He was the very first to take Warren's teachings and take it into the international markets. And in 1984, that was not necessarily fashionable. That wasn't the go-to decision. He was buying international stocks before Warren bought Coca-Cola, which was probably the first kind of global multinational that Warren got his hands around. So he was light years ahead of so many of us, including Warren in this particular area. So that's why I say it is an honor for us to be here. I want to start by just asking Tom to bring us up to date, because when we had breakfast I said, you know, a lot of people know your performance and track record, but probably don't know Tom, and I wanted you to basically start the afternoon with uh, leaving Wisconsin, starting your uh, education, and bring us up to the current date.
1: Well, it's it's such a pleasure to be here, and an equal pleasure for me to be here with Robert Hagstrom. Um, as we met each other back in the early 1990s, if not the late 80s. And um, and it turns out that Robert's uh, second book played a big role in shaping my own, and inve- in hardening my thoughts about investing in a way I'll get to, um, because his, his second book was terrific on one particular point. Um, I did grow up in a town called Janesville, Wisconsin. I think it probably has an important impact on my life. Um, uh, my mother, oddly enough, uh, ordered newspapers from around the world when I was a child. And so we every week we get our newspaper from some foreign land, mainly unintelligible, but it opened my eyes to global things. And in Janesville at the time, there was a family-controlled company called the Parker Pen Company. You Anyone here may remember it. It was a luxury good. Uh, it did what um, the prior group talked about. It gave somebody the ability to badge who they are by what they had. It was a Powerful brand, family-controlled company, and uh, in, in the arc of my career, I ended up today focusing on family-controlled companies with foreign foreign exposure, um, and and the Parker Penn Company stands as an example of a family-controlled company that went wrong, and so um, that's part of my background. And then, um, you know, generally speaking, the town I grew up in was the town of uh, of a General Motors plant, and. Paul Ryan um, uh, uh, was from Janesville and couldn't save the plant and Russ Feingold was from Janesville and couldn't save the plant. And so it was a, it was an, uh, it was a lesson in terms of what happens to a, a, a place, a city that becomes overly dependent on, on that type of a business. So it's an interesting background. I went to Dartmouth College uh, and then went to Stanford Business and Law School. And it was at, law, at business school when I met Warren Buffett in 1982 and he visited with our class and left several impressions that were very important for me. The first one with a simple one, is that the government only gave one break uh, to investors and that's the non-taxation of unrealized gains. Now, you should, you should take advantage of that and so structure investment approach around that phenomenon. And, uh, and then that requires, if you're going to make money off of, of uh, holding something for a long time, that you find businesses that are capable of growing. The old model of value investing would have been to buy a 50 cent dollar bill and your compound depends on how quickly that discount closes. Closes quickly, in a year you make 100% on your money. If it takes 10 years, you'll make 7% on your money. So that type of investment doesn't really require that the asset grows in value, just it requires a quick closure of the discount. The Complete opposite was underway with Berkshire when I met him in 1982 um at uh, and it really reflected the teachings of Charlie Munger in some ways about the virtue of corporate goodwill in the prior world the 50 cent dollar bills goodwill really didn't kick in at all it was just net networking capital it was all balance sheet driven and 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 you'd go on to find the next one but in the case of C's chocolate which Warren bought I, I gather and on the insistence of Charlie, they had this thing called the consumer goodwill. And to to show you, um, you know, sort of how that's played out over time, Warren in the annual report recently said that that little investment of $30 million in the early 1970s um, has re- returned to Berkshire $2 billion, plus its independent worth is probably close to $1.5 billion. Now that was a terrific investment, He hasn't had to pay a penny of tax on the appreciation of the business, so he fulfilled the lesson that he he shared with us at Stanford Business School, which is, the number one goal is to um, invest in a way that you don't have to uh, pay taxes. Um, But it requires a reinvestment, and that's that's where things get very difficult. Um, It requires that you grow the intrinsic value of the business that you bought shares in, And, and in order to get that done, you typically have to rely on third parties. And what Warren said to the class just after the tax statement was um, that you can't make a good deal with a bad person. And what he's referring to had to do with agency costs. As an owner of a business, um you hire managers, and managers are, are representing your your reinvestment decisions. And if you get the managements wrong, you will you will find that they tend to make investments that that favor them over favor the owner. And that was the second point that, that Berkshire, so that Warren gave to our group. And, uh, and that, that, really, um, that really drives the, uh, the um, need to find out a way to ensure that your management as is a, is a passive public investor uh, builds value to us. Now, in, in my own development over the years, I have found that the um, alignment of our clients' money alongside of family control companies has given us the ability to uh, reduce, but not minimize, eliminate, but to reduce the risk that management uh, runs their own uh, business uh, at the expense of owners, because the owners actually retain the vote, they retain supervision of the company. Now you can find drastically dull family-controlled companies. In fact, Robert lives next to one that once existed uh, and it was a Pennsylvania cable company. I own shares in a Pennsylvania cable company called Comcast, and down the road from where Robert lives, it's a company called uh, Adelphia. And Adelphia was as crooked as could be, and, and Comcast is, is, is sort of saintly as could be. And each of them were family controlled, and one of them has grown to be a behemoth, and the other one basically went bankrupt. And And they had the same starting point, same industry, same control structure, and you just have to get one right and and um, and uh, and uh, pay attention to some of the issues. Um, so you have this notion: you've got to find a business that allow you to reinvest. That's not very. That's not a not very easy to find businesses that allow you to invest if you have a twenty-year, thirty-year horizon. Um, one way that I found we could extend the universe of those businesses is to focus on those parts of the world where ninety-six percent of the population lived and who were undergoing population growth and growth in consumer disposable income. So in the early 1980s, we started buying foreign stocks. It's very hard to do, as Robert said. And, um, and in fact, this was probably the first one that, that we bought a, a, a big position. And we, I ended up owning 20% of this product. My wife grew up in England and it's a British cereal. Now mind you, if, has anybody here tasted Weetabix or ever come upon it? <laughs> And you live to tell the tale. Um, it's, um, it's really bad tasting cereal. The British love it. The British associate it with having a, need for something that's gonna sustain them through a really hard day. So, you know, the the consumption had sort of leveled off and I'd meet people all over the all over the United Kingdom and say, Do you still eat Weetabix? And they say, No, I'm eating, you know, um can um snack bars and all sorts of things. My life is on the run. I can't really afford the time. But then they'll say, but if I have a busy meeting in the day, I'll always have Weetabix beforehand. So it anyways had a great allure. Um it was family controlled. Um uh they They didn't have the ability to reinvest and they were smart enough to know it. So they let the business grow over time. If you look at the next page, you'll see the numbers. They're sort of hard to read, but on the far right-hand side says 1989. They had seven, is it 19 million of operating income? They had uh, 17 million in cash in the balance sheet. It traded for five times um, uh, EBITDA, uh, uh, EBITDA. And, uh, and it was a brand that uh, I felt, you know, in the, in the world that we, the prior group talked about the strength of brands, I, I really felt that this brand, um, having conquered a nation's taste as badly as it tasted, probably wasn't going anywhere. So I was prepared to invest. And over the years, the operating income went up from 19 million to 60 million. The cash built, now they were smart enough not to buy, not to uh, make stupid acquisitions with all that cash because it was really their money. Um, the family controlled it. We were, we were a 20% shareholder in it. And, um, and then over time, the market became quite disaffected with food companies. It was during the period of the internet bubble. Shares went down a lot. Um, and, uh, and towards the end, the manager from the family who represented the family's interests uh, partnered with a private equity firm and they bought the business. If you look at the next slide, you'll see that the, um, you know, the capacity to suffer as an investor was quite acute. For the first dozen years, we went straight up and the business uh, went substantially downwards during the period of the internet bubble. But at the end, it sort of caught up with the growth in intrinsic value as it's supposed to. And um, and it was a, a, long, a long and strong compounding investment. Um, Anyways, so you have, um, if, you're, if you're going to invest, you probably should try not to pay taxes. Uh, in order to do that, you're going to have to reinvest. If you're going to have to reinvest, you better do so th- through somebody who, who you can trust as your agent. Um, uh, and, 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 and for us, that's come through family control over those managers so they can, they can watch the uh, nest egg grow for the long term alongside with us. Um, and then the management who sets forth to make the investments, have to have something called the capacity to suffer. Because if you start down the path of trying to expand a business into adjacent markets or geographies, the upfront investment spending is going to overwhelm the existing operating cash flow. And unless you have owners protecting your position as a manager, um, knee deep into a big campaign designed to build value for the long term, you're gonna find someone come knocking on your door and they'll say, You know, your operating income's gone down for the last five years. What's going on? You don't really know what you're doing. And any protest that says, no, we're building a plan for the future will be greeted with a a disgust and and you will lose your job as a public company manager. Um, In our case, to the extent that the families provide the uh, managements the license to make those big investments that pay out later, we've been blessed by the uh, better results that have come from those investments.
0: Well, um, you, you mentioned a name in your opening remarks, Professor Jack McDonald. And I don't know, many of you know the, the stories of Jack McDonald, but I was going in my folder. Do you remember the coffee can portfolio yes. that he wrote yes. was an essay about, and he might, along with Phil Fisher, be one of the original concentrated buy and old guys with, along with, uh, with Warren. Uh, but it was in professor mcdonald 's class where Warren came to speak, so Warren obviously must have had some admiration for Professor McDonald, um, in addition to Warren and Professor McDonald. who other uh, great investors i 'll include Phil Fisher, but who yeah. other had influences on your thinking at that young age, yes. in the '80s as you were motoring up the hill there who was who was else uh, influencing you um.
1: I'd say it would be Bill Rowane. Um, as I went to work for the Sequoia Fund after business and law school, and um, and Bill was a um, complete independent thinker. So the offices were at 1376th Avenue, and for four years when I worked there, we never had a single sell-side analyst come through. It was all sort of homemade research, which of course is the best kind, and none of the none of the distractions from Wall Street whatsoever um, filtered through that process. Um, he, um, he had a very high tolerance for concentrated portfolio holdings. And, and I've sort of adopted a portion of that, not nearly so concentrated as he's willing to have gone, but um, our top three holdings are 30% of funds under management, our top 10 holdings are 70%. So it's, it's pretty concentrated, but he, Bill was even more concentrated. And then he had an enormous sense of humor and, and an enormously generous spirit which, which really uh, ingratiated himself well with the, with the companies he visited, with the people he, he associated with. And I can always remember going to a meeting with him once and he said to the person who he knew personally who in charge of a business that he was considering investing in, um, a business like, if you guessed the, the, the estimates on the street for earnings per share might have been five bucks. The stock may have been 60 at the time Five dollars of earnings. Most analysts spend all their day visiting with management, trying to know whether it's going to be five dollars, four ninety five, or five hundred five. That's that's where the rubber doesn't meet the road usually. Bill would say, "What are the chance that you're going to lose money next year?" So the estimates are at five bucks. Most people spend the time arguing whether it's five hundred five or four ninety five, and 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 there's Bill. He says, you know, "I'm sort of worried. What are the chances you'll lose money next year?" And of course, the, the CEO looks back and says. Are you are you crazy? We're, we're expected to earn five bucks. No, I don't know that, but what are the chances that you lose money next year? And they went on back and forth, exasperated. The CEO would finally look up and say, "Well, for that to happen, one of the three things would have to take place." Now, those are the only three things you really want to know about. You know, everything else that leads you to either five bucks or four ninety-five or five hundred five—that's all in the stock, and you don't really learn anything about it. But if you can get someone to say, well, for that to happen, these following three things would have to happen. Um, that's an extraordinary gift uh, to get the, the kind of disclosure that's that's part of the investment search, but most people cluster, and he, he didn't. And the last thing I'd say is that his, his particular gift was he drove everything down to unit pricing. I remember we were looking at Duracell, and, and he sort of figured out the price per battery based on the ingredients, and then sort of grossed it up by volume.
0: And, and, and all the rest. So he was, he was the complete guy. Well, the folklore was that uh, when you guys were at Sequoia that you actually knew what the price was for the paper that rolled around the cigarette. Oh, absolutely. You had it, you had it down to that. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, but that yeah. was uh, Of course, um, uh, it was, um, uh, they, we owned the company, it was, it was called Acosta, and it was part of P.H. Gladfeld. So it was a big investigation. Um, but anyways, the, this concept of uh, capacity to reinvest, capacity to suffer, shows up in so many of our holdings. I think Heineken may be one of the most interesting ones because it shows that the capacity to suffer arises in one of two ways. It could either be that Wall Street wants you, the management, to do one thing and you say no. So Wall Street says yes, you say no. The other side, it could be Wall Street says no and you say yes. In each case, as management of the public company, you will be equally scorned by Wall Street because they tend to want to have a certain thing happen in their own way. And Heineken over the years has, has had the courage because of Freddie Heineken's control stake, um, they have had the courage to reach. And so in one case, um, they were asked, they, in fact they were implored by Wall Street to acquire Brazil's second largest brewer because Ambev, their main global competitor, AB a- InBev, um, actually actually's home market and the market of most of their strength is Brazil. And there's a belief that if Heineken gets strong in their home market, they would have the ability to press on uh, competitive action when other parts of the world become lit up competitively. And it would be a good thing not only for that purpose, but it's a big beer pool of profits. so. Heineken um, was implored by Wall Street to take this early move to get competitive in Brazil. Um, and Wall and, and, and Heineken said no, uh, price didn't make sense and they weren't ready and the business went to Kirin for $5 billion and they bought 12% of the Brazilian beer market for $5 billion. Fast forward four years later now, um, Kirin's made a mess of it, uh, they really, ruined the business, they've made enormous losses, they come back to the market to sell it, and the market said to Heineken, don't even think of touching it. And um, and Heineken looked at it and said, well that's not such a bad deal at $590 million. So the business that they had the capacity to avoid, because management was protected by the uh, family, um, would have cost them five billion dollars had they followed Wall Street. Instead, of, they ignored Wall Street when they had the chance to buy it for 590. Now, it, it, it seems it seems to make a mockery of Wall Street, so I, I, I overly generalize here, but the real issue wasn't the 590. The real issue was that the business that they bought was going to cost them a lot of money to get um, properly integrated with the business Heineken already had, and those those investments would actually be the ones that really disturb the, uh, the, the financial markets because they're unpredictable and they would burden operating income heavily. And Heineken has said that their business going forward um, uh, would be burdened in a way that the investment spending that goes through the income statement um, as they spend another billion dollars merging it all together would depress earnings and it would, it would actually keep the operating margin from growing it. 15 basis points a year to 10 or something. And with that news in hand, the stock market took Heineken's shares down from 89 euros a share to 81. And it would have kept going had had this not be a family controlled company. In the midst of all this, um, another competitor came along and bid for Heineken's shares um, because at at the moment of the great collapse in the price, uh, they tried to be opportunistic and the family said, go away. We control 50.1% of the shares and there's, there's no interest. Now that's, that's the kind of protection that you can get um, if you have a like-minded, long-term oriented family yeah. and a business managed by people who are long-term minded.
0: You might uh, recall that Will Thorndike was asked about, he wasn't going to write a second book but he might write an expanded book and include international managers. And When I was in London with uh, Will at the uh, conference over there and he was talking about this, I said, you got to talk to Tom. I said, you know, Tom knows everybody. The problem with Will's book, not a problem, but Bill requires that if you're in his book, you have to run an allocated capital for 20 years. Everybody in, the outsiders, ran that business for 20 years before they got the thumbs up from Will. So There are not that many people out there that have a 20-year record of allocating capital. But Tom said, yeah, there is one, and there's several, but one that I think does it extremely well is Heineken, and, and Tom and Will talk, so that, that's a that's a great story. Hearing you talk about Bill Ruane and the way that he so masterfully is able to talk with management and, and get to the nuts and bolts without embarrassing them reminds me when you took me under your wing and I was pledging and we went to see uh, Dow Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Kahn, I guess, This was 95, 96, Peter Kahn, who was a Pulitzer Prize journalist and started the Asia edition of Wall Street Journal and was brought in to be CEO. And uh, we walked into his office, and I think he was only on the desk for two or three years, but there was an annual report laying out, and Tom walked over and opened up the annual report. It was one of those annual reports at the back. It showed you 10 years trailing of earnings, I think. And Tom just took his finger down to the CapEx line and just slowly went left to right of all the money that the capital expenditures of Dow Jones had spent for 10 years and then just as politely as anything said, Peter, can you tell me how this money was put to work and and what happened and how you did it? and it was the most beautiful way of saying, you screwed up this company with all this capital expenditures, but they went through yeah. a great dialogue. You might yeah. tell a bit of that story, I thought that was great.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is the fact that they just kept consuming capital with no return. At the time, it was really because they had a series of news wires that they were trying to use to compete against Quotron and, and, and Telerate, and then Bloomberg came along with their superior product, and it was just an endless stream of expenditures that ultimately led to nothing but losses. Um, but lest um, that story make me seem like I'm I'm too clever with annual reports, um, it reminds me, just um, this past week, I met with Brown Foreman, um, the management, and uh, I opened up the annual report to the last page, and, and their charts going just like that. And appropriately so, there's Brown Foreman's share price, there's the SOP, and there's the, the uh, spirits industry in general. So I commended them on that but told them the story about when I was in, in uh, Greece years ago. And I had gone there with uh, Di- with Guinness, the parent, the former company, to Diageo. And the Greeks love um, Johnny Walker Black Label. And there's a specific format where it was consumed in absolute uh, barrels. And it was called the bazookia. And the bazookia is an outdoor entertainment area where men and women gather at the feet of a singer in an open stage and, uh, and, uh, and that was the, um, uh, the uh, visit to the country to see how the business was going. And uh, just as an aside, I'd say one of the best businesses I've ever looked at was the business inside that bazookia. The owner of the business had a platform just about this high, and men would be close into the table with their dates, and they'd, they'd peel out $1,000, 2000 $3,000, and they'd buy this platter of gardenias. And they, the man would bring the platter, he'd inspect it, he'd bring it up and he'd throw it at the feet of the singer, to, um, who showed absolute disrespect for the whole thing. <laughs> um, but he was then croons to the woman for a while to show some sort of love. And in the meantime, you see this broom sweeping up the gardenias, and they put it back on the plate, and they sell it again. <laughs> And again, and again, throughout the course of the evening, men's stature to the women who they were with for the expenditure of that money worked perfectly fine, and it was just one of those great businesses. <laughs> the next morning, probably hung over, I met with one of Unilever's subsidiaries in Greece, and they had in the back of the annual report um, a chart, just like we've seen so far, and through an interpreter, I said to the man how proud he must be. The report was in Greece, Greek, and he said, why? And I said, Well, there's your chart. You know, here's your share price. Here's the industries, and here's the S and P, right? He said, No, no. Um, this is labor costs. This is <laughs> this is ingredient costs, and here's our revenue increase. <laughs> so you meet all sorts of strange things going around the world looking for cheap
0: stock. Yeah. Well, the the theme, Tom, as you know, is uh, you know identifying compounders in the global economy and. And so you, the, the whole idea of capacity to suffer, um, you know, brings to mind you've got two companies, well-intentioned, good management, and they're saying, okay, I have the capacity to suffer. I'm going to take my earnings, uh, I'm going to plow them back into the company. Uh, and so what metrics are you able to think about, discuss with management, observe, that while they're going through this capacity to suffer period in their, in their evolution, that one is heading in the right direction and one is heading off the cliff. Yeah. And it's sometimes hard when you don't have the earnings number, yeah. you have something down there to prove whether yeah. things are going right or wrong.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I can think of a couple of examples. Um, uh, but it is, it, it's certain that you're going to, um, you're going to burden your income. And then it's just a question of how much they can disclose. There's a certain element of competitiveness. Um, the earlier session, the, the conversations about, about MasterCard, and whether it was technology, dependent in a way that would make them vulnerable to others who are coming to the market and all the rest. Um, it, the one thing I'd say about that, because it's very much a investment story. It's not a family control company, but Ajay Banga, who runs it, treats it as if it was his child. And he wants this child to go to you know, graduate school someday, and he's spending every penny he possibly can. And the real story about MasterCard was the fact that 85% of their their, their market exposures in developing emerging markets where, where cash is almost 100% of the form of currency. And he's investing enormous amounts of money with, with governments in mind because he has to get adopted to serve in those markets for, to come up with ways where social benefits, um, uh, you know, aid to mothers with dependent children and other things are disseminated directly into the payment device that they have, which they can then use uh, to buy the family's needs, as opposed to the world that they've confronted historically where the government would send a check out, arrive maybe in your mailbox, at which point the mother would have to take a day off work, go into the city to cash the check, lose a third of the money to the cashier, use another third to her uh, father of her kids and then get home with very little to show for the uh, benefit that society tries. Now he's been all over Africa and, and, uh, and India and other parts of the country the world trying to come up with those types of systems. Um, uh, the, the, the quick and dirty way to understand the magnitude of, of MasterCard spending is just to see how flat their operating income has been despite huge absorption of fixed costs due to the growth in gross dollar volumes each year for five years. So you've had enormous growth in volume um, that absorbs fixed costs. The margin sticks around 55, 60%. It could be 10 points higher if they weren't plowing all the money back into the business that they were. Um, How you can see it um, unfold, uh, a good contrast would be in the the, um, late 90s, uh, E.W. Scripps is a company whose shares we owned. and. Washington Post was a company whose shares we owned at the time, and Scripps um, had a executive who, who had run several divisions. He was out of out of uh, work at that time within the company. He proposed to the family trust that that had voting control um, his interest in creating a new network that would wed the interests of home and garden and create a TV network called the Home and Garden TV network. Never done before, white space untouched. The family had. Um, television assets that they could use to launch the cable um, uh, operation without having to sell a share to John Malone. Uh, They had advertising skills, they had production skills for video for the TV stations they owned. They had everything in-house that was necessary, they just needed the approval. The trust told Ken Lowe, who created the business, that he had exactly 150 million bucks to spend, at the end of which they had no more money to support the program, and, and, and the first year he hired two people and they may have lost a, a million bucks. But by the fourth year, um, they were burning enough money to come up with a fully programmed lineup with no revenue. And so they were hemorrhaging losses on a business that may have started with $350 million of operating income. The actual operating income as they, as they entered the later years um, sharply weighed downward by the spending. Uh, the family trust controlled the company, so there's absolutely no, no distraction on the part of management as to trying to run for the brass ring. And so they built it well. Um, it ended up um, being the case that the TV stations and the newspapers and everything else that they were pledging to underwrite the cost of this thing shriveled up and went away. And the TV network grew in valuation of something like 12 billion dollars when it was bought by Discover, it was a perfect story of burdening the income statement, secure with the notion that the family trust would not let a takeover dislodge um, uh, Ken Load simply because the operating income failed to go up over the years when it was burdened by those specific spending. Exactly the same story with the Washington Post. Don Graham went to his, his family, his board, and had the approval to spend up to $150 million to consolidate the um, the, the for-profit education business under the umbrella of Stanley Kaplan. And uh, he spent for the same four years, he spent exactly $150 million. At the end, he had a big donut. So, I mean, one of them worked because it's also a question of vision. And I think Ken's vision on a market that was um, available uh, broadly was deeper than what the Don Harness.
0: Well, switching gears, one of the hot topics that we've been discussing throughout the years, the accounting change, uh, whereby companies that own marketable securities, Berkshire being the prime example, now are required to uh, uh, calculate the change in market value, and, and that change goes through the income yes. statement. I yeah. know you feel strongly about this yeah. issue. Do you want to share that with us?
1: I just thought, we, we talked beforehand when we met. Um, it, just, it was interesting to see Warren take such a, a public stand on the subject. Because of course, because the, the whole point of accounting is it's supposed to move towards um, a, a, a situation which conveyed to you what really matters. And to think that uh, the the recently engaged accounting standards of uh, force in income, uh, both the operating income from the businesses that Warren controls 100% of, um, and the change in share price of portfolio holdings. Um, they have absolutely nothing to do with anything other other than sort of your your impact as well at once showed on equity at the end um, but to think that this is somehow gaining more uh, clarity in terms of what what the business actually is, is delivering to you as a result of hard work and good thought is really it's really inappropriate and I thought he spoke well about it
0: Good, a couple more questions and we'll open it up Uh, for you guys in there. Uh, The other thing that we talked about at breakfast was, uh, and I know how keenly you you look at executive compensation and how executives are are paid over time to create shareholder value. And one of the things you spoke to me about was uh, so many companies, not so many, but uh, several companies have incentive compensations for their CEOs that are tied to revenue growth. And it brought to your attention, uh, you know, the ConAgra Pinnacle Foods, uh, General Mills uh, with Blue Buffalo, and even Nestle, which you own, yes, uh, and Starbucks, which through each one of the acquisitions, there was a lot of revenue top line yes. growth, yeah, and obviously the CEO benefits. So, to what degree is that proper, and w- what degree is that self uh, self dealing for the CEO? Yeah, I think you know,
1: I I, I raise the point mm-hmm. because the. Um, the uh, specific situation with something like Blue Buffalo, where General Mills invests $8 billion to buy it, um, when their compensation is based on, on growth rates in revenue. Um, and, and so you can see how buying a business that has sharply growing revenues, maybe 30% per annum at the rate of growth that Blue Buffalo was growing prior to the transaction, Um, If you cycle one year of that in and then start comparing going forward uh, the performance uh, on which your incentive compensation will derive based on just revenue growth, you've accelerated the revenue growth, but you put out $8 billion to do it. And and, and wise wise investors would suggest that 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 $8 billion deserves a return before before you're incenting uh, just for revenue growth without a charge for capital. That was our point. And, uh, and hopefully, you know, with with, uh, with the portfolio companies that we have, uh, we're less exposed to that. Because at the end of the day, one of the reasons why, over the years, I migrated to international companies, mainly 70% of our holdings are non-U.S. companies, is because their compensation system seems so much more reasonable than what, what, what exists in the U.S., uh, unhinged with things like capital charges.
0: Yeah. I can't resist uh, asking this question when you when you mention it to me is that you said kind of quote-unquote today we need to celebrate failing fast that the notion of risk capital and how companies use capital needs to change which requires their culture to change when it comes to taking risks yeah. expand yeah. on that would you
1: well it, it it really is in in the context of the question that was was really um, at the heart of the last session for so much of the conversation, which is what happens to these consumer branded goods companies that had enjoyed low volatility and strong growth over a long period of time, um, when there's the digital disruptors that come in. Um, I think somebody referred to uh, Dollar Shave Club, and Dollar Shave Club, um, you know, relative to uh, Gillette, I don't think they were even aware of it until the game was over. Um, Gillette, if you think about the prior decade, had had four assaults against their franchise by Unilever, by Target, by uh, Wilkinson Blade, by Schick, and by Bick. They all went straight to the front door of the Castle Gillette, knocked on the door, and said, can we have a fight with you for market share? It was as public as that. And of course, Gillette crushed them nothing to show for the assaults because they have all the, they had all the benefits um, uh, Dollar Shave club sort of off in the wilderness never had the decency to come by and say let's have a fight and 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 created this product which is as is required for most products today um, that had both the but the product itself but also something that came in in, in um, uh, uh, alongside of it. In this case, it's the cool factor of getting a box every week with someone who cares enough about you to send you fresh blades. And, and they're cheap, but it's also the notion that it's a, it's a technological platform that's different than what the old folks used. And there's a, a, an excitement about it. it. It went rampant on social network. And at that moment, Gillette's game was over. I mean, you know, they had kept their blades behind locked counters, behind locked screens at the department, at grocery stores, and drugstores. Um, and here's this delivery. Now, um, that that is something that they never should have let happen. Um, they needed they needed to scour the social landscape with 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 um, um, alerts that that would inform them sooner. And then they they needed all of the businesses that we own, whether it's Unilever, Nestle, um, Heineken with spirits and beer and craft brewers, they all need to have the capacity to go as soon as they see something come at them, go into the market as soon as possible with a tactical response that they can use to um, dislodge the early success that is required for the businesses that compete against them to get venture funding and to then roll out the product uh, dramatically. But if, you know, we have examples in Nestle's case, um, they have, they own Gerber. Gerber is sort of the dominant uh, infant formula, infant food company uh, in, in the world, glass bottles. And when the pouch system came along, we asked management, what do you think? And they said, women like glass bottles. And that was a dangerous response because the, big, the whole business. How many of you have children who use Gerber glass-bottle food? Nobody. How many of you have children who have pouches? It's, it's just unbelievable. And, and so they're going to have to have the ability the moment they hear about something like this, to put in the marketplace, you know, three days later after the launch, um, a, a look-alike. It's a tactical move. Um, to protect their main business, they need to be tactical as well as strategic. But really, the major food companies have had the luxury, major consumer brand, the goods companies in general, of, of a strategy over tactics. And, and and that is, is something that they'll have to change because the, the ability to become someone's favorite inside social network has been has proved to be very effective. Now we do have at the moment investigations about the limits of Facebook and what they're allowed to share and all the rest, which may provide a little bit of comfort. but it, it's still it's still required of the management that they become f- much more prepared to fail. Yeah. Um, Unilever said yesterday when I met with them, that in the last 12 months they've, lost 20, they've launched 22 new products um, where in the prior 10 years they launched in the same part of their company personal care, something like three a year. And the pace of innovation quickened. Good.
0: Well, let's open it up. We've got about 15 minutes and I know you have lots of questions, so let's get started. Hi. Thank you very much for, for being here.
1: Can we you, ad- about, can you,
0: can you identify yourself? Oh, sure. Hi, Dan Roller with Moran Capital from Denver, Colorado. Thank you. Um, your conversation touched on family controlled businesses, patience, time horizon, executive compensation. I'd be curious to get your take on kind of the modern world of activism, generally positive, negative, uh, probably some pros and cons, but curious about the modern, modern activism over the last decade or so. Yeah. Thanks.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's usually it's in the in the in its best moment it's just it's a question of timing and and, and time horizon. Um, if you think about how few activists end up holding shares in the companies that they've worked with thirty years later. So I bought Heineken in nineteen eighty six, I bought Nestle in nineteen eighty six, you know we have we have probably held the top ten holdings for on average 25 years um, and now I, I've described to you um, a host of areas. I can go on at, at length about places wherein inside of Nestle they've really let their guard down by not responding fast as I suggested they could have with back. So, um, you know, in, in, in the case of Nestle where a Third Point arrived, with a, with a sort of list of, of thoughts and requests, um, it's been a fabulous uh, ally to their new CEO who came in from outside the culture as to use as a fulcrum to, to say that if we don't do this now, you know, those guys are going to really do it differently and we'll, we'll we, we, we have to make these steps in part because it's the right thing to do and it's because we don't have much choice because there's someone breathing down our neck and that's been a terrific um, uh, catalyst for change. And, and there happened, you know, Heinz was a catalyst for change when, when, um, when uh, uh, Nelson Peltz went on the board of Heinz. There have been any number of examples. Um, and, and, and then there's just a, a question of, of um, you know, duration and how long you're, you're going to stay. And so, uh, you know, I, for example, in the, in the Nestle case, there's a huge um, uh, dis- dispute over what to do with a $25 billion holding in L'Oreal. In theory, they should get rid of it, but in practice, it's, it's made them $27 billion, and, and, uh, and, and, and they're comfortable with holding it. And so I personally feel perfectly comfortable holding that position um, uh, within the company, even though the activists in this case would love to extract it, at which point they most likely would move on. Um, uh, but it's, they've been an enormous factor of change, which I, I applaud them for.
0: Who else? Dan. Hi, Dan Geary from uh, Sampson Investment Partners. Tom, on the topic of disruption, how do you think about uh, the competitive threat from Juul to the core business of Philip Morris and British American uh, Tobacco versus kind of the opportunity that Juul's created for British American Tobacco and PM by essentially validating an entirely new nicotine delivery industry? I had
1: I actually brought a jewel that I was going to pass around, so anybody here who's unfamiliar with it would have a chance to see it. Um, anyways, it's 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 really um, a provoking moment because Philip Morris, uh, whose shares I've held for quite a long time, um, with a major nod to capacity to suffer, has spent the last five years in uh, developing a product that heated but didn't burn tobacco that would, um, that that would allow adult smokers to quit smoking. More than half of the adult smokers in the world want to quit and this is the product lined up for it. It launched in Japan, 7 million people now um, uh, around the world use the Icos product that Phil Morris invented. Now it cost them, as I said, $2.5 billion uh, over five years to develop it um, and, and the next big step is the US and the FDA has stonewalled them. And it has the potential for being extremely disruptive over time for the Philip Morris and Altry investment because Juul has in the marketplace today a product that can help adult smokers quit. It doesn't have any reference to tobacco whatsoever and it has the advantage of having become rather cool and sexy. And that's a real problem. Um, uh, someone s- s- thoughtfully talked earlier today about about positional goods, which are those things that you use to tell people who you are by what you have. I mean, that's that's why Marlboro was a 42 percent market share cigarette for 30 years. Is that that said everything you wanted around the world? It was called American freedom. And it just, you know, set the world on fire, literally. Um, and uh, uh, in, in the U.S. today, um, there's, a, there's a bulk of business that's being done traditionally. And there's this outlier called Juul, which um, has enough nicotine impact to help adult smokers quit. And if it stays unchallenged as the only product in the market long enough, Philip Morris's product, which would have been perfectly suited for that market will have tough sledding, tougher sledding than they would have. And it's completely um, uh, unknowable when the FDA will act. There seems to be no statutory requirement for them to act in any kind of haste whatsoever. I was just with management from Altria who suggested that they thought that there'd be a chance that the um, FDA may um, act on allowing that product into the market by year end and in part, if they did, it may come as a result of Jewel's own difficulties that they've encountered. Because if any, how many of you have kids, middle age, middle school age children in New York City private schools? No, no one. If you did, and 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 you would you would know that the headmasters of all of those are absolutely paranoid about Jewel sweeping through their schools, and they, they have a point. Um, and it's mark. It's sort of been adopted by kids today as maybe a marker rebellion or something, but um, the fact is um, it's the only product that addresses smoking cessation for cigarette smokers at the moment that works. And I think the FDA may actually think it makes sense to come in and license another one. We'll see. Um, It's, it's, um, it's been very disruptive on the, on the tradition of sort of stable tobacco market.
0: Good. Who else? Uh, Lara Anderson from Capstrike uh, from Dublin. Just curious uh, on your thoughts on the asset management industry, the listed asset management industry, or, or components of it, or, and whether you've ever found that interesting in any way. And it's, I don't, don't think it's in your portfolio, and, and, and why not?
1: It's a good question. Um, there have been great companies, been in, both in great companies and great stocks. And I've missed out on those. Um, no particular reason. I guess it's just I haven't, um, I haven't spent the time um, thinking more deeply on it than just admiring what's been going along uh, from a distance. Um, I don't have, you know, now moving forward, uh, you, you'd say, gosh, you know, the fee compression looks like it's going to be inexorable and accelerating. Um, indexation is, is sort of not only um, uh, sold, effectively based on low fees, but it ultimately is becoming uh, inevitably the sponsored uh, solution in light of regulatory change. If you just think about what the Department of Labor um, proposed with their fiduciary rule, it was, an, it was an absolute sort of one-way stop to indexation given the burden that it put on fiduciary. So I think I probably missed a great great period of, of investment success. Uh, ironically, when I was at Stanford Business School, we had to write up one of two companies, we had to write up eight company, and I looked at two. I wrote up one that's very forgettable, and some a business that went away, and the other one I looked at was Franklin Resources. And if I had just written the second one up and bought $10,000 worth of their shares in 1982, just, it would have been extraordinary. That's That has been one of the most productive investments you could have found. Great. The money management
0: business. Yeah, just, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Michael. Hi, Tom. Uh, Mike Knipp uh, from Chicago. Yeah. Uh,
1: you know, your portfolio doesn't change a lot. And so my, my question is, uh, how hard is it for a company to make it into the Tom Russo portfolio? And, and how often or how frequent does that happen? And you know what does it actually take? I'm reminded by the question of the conversations that I had with friends in Boston after the Red Sox won the World Series. Um, and we were talking about things some, it was some months later. And I said, what, what's going on? I said, it's been terrific. I just got into the country club. Really? I said, what, how how'd that happen? Said, I've been on the waiting list for 12 years, um, but there are no spots. And now that the Red Sox won, a whole bunch of people died. Because they're because they had been holding out until they had the chance to see a winning team, and so the whole bench cleared out, and, and in they came. So, you know, we we had um, uh, we had the death of one holding, which was B A T. Uh, which, which was British American Tobacco, was part of an exposure to the tobacco industry. And in light of the question you raised about uncertainty with the tobacco world, we did reduce that position um, effectively to zero. That gave some funds, and a small part of that went into Google, which would be the first new position since, I don't know, 2010. And, uh, and, and we're getting to know that business better, it's been a long-standing interest, but um,
0: uh, it's a small starters position. Just a couple of more, I just gotta sneak one in uh, that I think we all have to suffer through the headline risk, I think tonight is the uh, deadline for comments on the tariffs that probably will be announced tomorrow, and then obviously we've had a, a kind of an explosion in the currency markets starting with Argentina that morphed to Turkey now, to South Africa, now to India. What changes in your life tomorrow if they announce a $160 billion tariff on China? What changes tomorrow for Sempervic if uh, we have more contagion type episodes in emerging market currencies?
1: Um, these, are, these are all, you know, the headwinds. Major headwinds, um, the trade with China. I mean, um, ultimately, we are um, we are going to import a lot of inflation into the U.S. If, if if the price adjustments that will be required are are met without a reduction in demand, um, there's going to be inflation. Um, our businesses are designed to cope well with inflation. Um, they have price inelastic demand because of the point made by the earlier group that the products that we have with brands so very often help people identify who they are by what they have and they, they are very long-standing loyalties and so um, it's the definition of a non-commodity is to have pricing power enough to offset commodity cost increases to margins. And that's what our companies historically have had. And so um, inflation's a risk, uh, I think we're pretty well protected against that. Um, You know, we sell an awful lot of consumer products to Brazil, for example. They have an election coming up and the currency has been soft. And the business in Brazil has been been relatively soft for most of our companies. The emerging markets in general over the past three or four years have suffered from the contagion brought about by China shrinking back and looking inwards for the past three or four years. Now, China's come back and, and, and the emerging markets have improved a bit. But all of these headwinds will weigh upon our portfolio companies. Uh, the tariffs, um, you know, we have uh, um, you know, so, uh, businesses before the Chinese government that just can't get past square one. You know, the allure of China is that uh, if the government supports you, you can go extraordinarily far and fast. And that's the story of Tencent and Alibaba. You know, they've had such illustrious uh, development. But just recently you begin to see with Tencent, the government's uh, reproach on gaming and on the addiction of gaming and all the rest. And suddenly Tencent has a problem on his hand because it was built by the government and, and now it's sort of being reined back um, by the government. I have no idea, China's a mystery, I have no idea where we'll end up.
0: Good. Anybody else, one last one? Go ahead. Robert, I just want to say I loved uh, your book, Investing in the Last Liberal Art. Thanks kind. for Absolutely. publishing that. And I wanted to ask you, Thomas, uh, you mentioned in your opening that uh, something influenced you from one of his books. I'd love for you to expand on that. And then my question would be, kind of going a little bit higher level, what meta skills do you think make you a better investor? Like what sorts of things have you tried to you know, read about, learn about that you think apply to investing? This for both of you. I'd love to know your, your answers. Thank you.
1: Um, well, the point—the the first point was that in Robert's second book, um, he he revisited the super investors of Graham and Doddville in a most clever way, because that book stands for the proposition that within that universe, Bill Rowe and a dozen other investors all approached investing in a slightly different way, but they all shared a value orientation, and they all outperformed over time. But what Robert examined—it was extraordinary—was that of all of those who outperformed over time, um, they all underperformed half the time. Yeah. The S&P, they underperformed. And so you, the conclusion to that is, in order to have the capacity to outperform, you have to have the capacity to suffer through periods of time when you're out of, out of sync. If you try to prevail all the time, um, you will clearly trade your way out of um, uh, returns. And I thought that was very profound.
0: That, I mean, that, Bill Miller, when I worked with Bill, he was always big on frequency versus magnitude. And our business as asset managers, our customers want frequency of outperformance. But that leads to suboptimal returns. And Bill says, it's not how many times you're right, less how many times you're wrong. It's how much money you make when you're right, yes. less how much money you give back when you're wrong. And, and, and what the super investors of Buffettville, I called it in the book, was when they made money, they made a hell of a lot of money. And when they underperformed, they underperformed a little but not a lot. So it wasn't a frequency argument, it was a magnitude argument. And then meta, I've just
1: been very fortunate uh, to have worked with people who had interesting um, insights and had the right orientation of concentrated investments, uh, very low turnover, um, tax sensitive. um, and, uh, And then the early advice by Professor McDonald, which was not to be provincial, but to start to look internationally, back in 1982 when it was hard to do.
0: Uh, and few were, and it, it made it very rich pickings. All right, we'll wrap up, but, and I know Tom may stick around, I don't know your schedule, but I have one last question that I told people that I, some in the Mafia clan, uh, the Buffett Mafia group, I said, I got Tom on the stage, give me one question. And uh, this one came back like threefold. Say the same thing that people asked Warren, you know, if you were 25, we got a lot of gray hairs out there. I'm one, we got a lot of middle-aged, but there are a lot of young people out here. Yeah. Okay, they're, they're young. They would like to start a successful investment career and prosper as you have with your clients. What advice do you have for a young person today in this market yeah. to get started, get moving, and build a successful firm as you have? Mm. Uh, good good question. I think just to make sure that you don't
1: overpromise. promise um, <laughs> at the start you know it just at any point in time and um so it's 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 um not to overpromise. it's um to be i think fair on fees so i i i invest as a one percent per year business um, uh, i think the the structures that are very very flattering and familiar and useful um, work against raising money and also keeping money if if the fees are much uh, substantially amount higher. Um, so you, you have to make your own decision about that. Um, you can you can do extremely well with a with a, um, a participating capital uh, allocation fee structure with a relatively small amount of money because of the way the math works. And that's one way to go and it's a perfectly reasonable way. Um, uh, so one would be expectations. Um, f- um, the other one would be fee structure and then the third one i found is to try not is to just manage a portion of the the funds of the families for whom you work um, because because you will find that the emotions of having all of a client's money are extraordinarily hard to manage and you'll spend all your time trying to explain away why you don't own something that's running along and if you have all of a person's funds they just can't Overcome it. The cocktail party conversation pressure is too intense. So, uh, those would be those would be three things that um, I say: manage a portion, um, uh,
0: modest fees, and modest expectations. <laughs> under 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 bet right. That's good. Uh, well, listen, uh, this has been great. Thank you to John Moi, all his team for this. Um, we'll stick around for a little bit if anybody wants to go one on one. We thank you for your time and uh, have a safe trip back. Thanks. Gracias.